Would you turn in your Bibles now to Proverbs chapter 4 for our study this morning? Forty times in this book, the word sons is used, or son, singular. Over half of those instances, it is in the possessive, my son, or my children. Chapter 4 opens up that way. Hear my children, the instruction of a father. And give attention to no understanding, for I give you good doctrine. Do not forsake my law. When I was my father's son, tender and the only one in the sight of my mother, he also taught me and said to me, Let your heart retain my words, keep my commands, and live. We find then that Proverbs is a book for families to practice, not just theologians to ponder and argue about which part is this and that, but something to put into daily family living. Now, a show of hands this morning. How many are parents here? Raise your hand. How many have children? Wow, look around. A lot of you. How many of you want to be parents someday? Raise your hand. How many of you have had parents? Raise your hand. Well, that's a good sign. Now, our message title this morning is What Makes a Good Parent? And i got to kind of give you a disclaimer. I don't stand as an expert on this. Believe me, I am in the process of learning. What makes a good parent? That's a good question. Fortunately, by God's grace, we're given very... Wonderful instructions in his word about parenting. Um, I am in the process of parenting. I have one son, so certainly I'm not an expert. Um, I was talking to one of my assistants who has five children. So I asked him this morning, what makes a good parent? And he sighed. He said, sacrifice. (laughs) Well, certainly that's part of it. And from day to day, my son's opinion of me varies. Last night I was getting my studies done. He said, what are you teaching on, Dad? I said, I'm teaching on being a good parent. And so he kind of looked at me and I said, well, am I a good parent? And he said, oh yeah, you're a great dad. You're a wonderful dad. And of course, that opinion will change from one day to the next. There'll be days where he think, you know, you have a lot to learn, Dad. You lack in many, many areas of parenting. And I'm going to hone your parenting skills, or I'm going to challenge them at least. Um... I am of the opinion that our children's opinions now go up and down, and it doesn't matter as much now what they think of us, as much as what they think of us later on when the course is finished. I mean, you could give your kids everything in the world and just spoil them rotten, and they say, oh, you're wonderful, oh, you're great. But what about later on when it's all said and done, and the course is finished, and they're raised up, and they turn around, will they call us blessed? Now, after God created the heavens and the earth, the first thing he did is he put man upon the earth. And uh, he saw that man was not complete alone, so he made a woman. And then he gave them instructions. He said, fill the earth, propagate it, have kids. So God, from the beginning, originated the idea of the family. And the family is the place that has the greatest potential for joy and the greatest potential for sorrow. It's where you begin. It's where life is launched. It's where life is molded. It is so important, it is the fiber of a nation. As the family goes, so goes the nation. We are simply a group, a large group of many families together in our nation. And 
the idea of what a family is is changing. Folks, June and Ward Cleaver don't live here anymore. Our nation is not sympathetic to the traditional family. There is a real push against it, in fact. Um, Go to any college campus and listen to some of the teachers talk about the family. One teacher recently instructed his students, quote, to free the child. We must do away with parenthood and marriage. We must settle for nothing less than the total elimination of the family. That's a very bold statement. Now, we know that children are a gift from the Lord. But even Socrates said that he wondered how men could spend so much time and be so careful in training a cult and yet not be so careful in training their own children. He wondered that so many people seemed to be aloof from the raising of their own children. Psalm 127, we just quoted, Children are a heritage or a gift from the Lord. They are the uh, reward, and the Bible says, like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are children of one's youth. In other words, kids are given to us to be launched out to where God wants them to go. They're like arrows in the hand of a warrior, arrows in a quiver. And of course, many of you have lots of children and you quiver a lot because of that. It's a big load these days to raise children. Proverbs 22.6 is sort of the banner statement that Christian parents use. Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now let's dispel a myth. There are no perfect parents. You could say, well, wait a minute. You don't know me yet. But you, you may be a good parent, but you're not a perfect parent. There's only one perfect parent, and that is God. But you can be a good one. And we must begin with just the onset of the meaning of what it is to be a Christian parent. I think it's summed up by this writer. All husbands and wives borrow their children. Our children are not our own. Our children belong to God. He has loaned them to us for a season. Most marriages contain these borrowed jewels. They are not ours to keep, but to rear. They are not given to us to mold into our image. They are not given to us so we can force them to fulfill our lives and thus in some way cancel our own failures. They are not tools to be used, but they are souls to be loved. Now I want to draw your attention this morning to verse 10 through 13. Hear, my son, and receive my sayings. The years of your life will be many. I have taught you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in the right paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hindered. When you run, you will not stumble. Take firm hold of instructions. Do not let go. Keep her, for she is your life. There's three general areas that this text brings out. First of all, for being a good parent, it takes the parents' involvement in their kids' lives. Then it takes their parents' instruction about some key issues. And then finally, there is the parent's influence in a child's life. Let's look at the first verse of the text, verse 10, and see the parent's involvement. Uh, Hear, my son, receive my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. Does that sound familiar? Did you ever have a father or mother that said, Now, when I was your age... Or, let me tell you a few things right now that will help you as you grow. And and, and we're all used to that. I had a father who was fond of saying, you know, lean your ear, incline your ear to my sayings. 
And he would sit me down. Now, son, when I was a child and I used to walk to school through the snow, 20 miles, barefoot, and uh, got off early to help at the farm. And he did grow up working very hard and making great sacrifices. But I always didn't want to hear those things. In fact, I knew his spiel. Uh, He would say something, and I could turn my head and finish what he was about to say. I knew everything You know, by the time I was about 13, and I was kind of a smart aleck about it. I grew up in an average American family, I suppose. I was the youngest of four boys. Uh, There were no girls in our family except my mother, and we drove her nuts. And uh, I was the youngest of four boys, so I had three older brothers. You think, oh, well, you were probably the one that was favored and spoiled. No, no, contraire. Uh, I was the slave of those three older brothers. I was the bed maker. I was the fetcher. I did a lot of... And I used to pray that I'd have a brother or sister. And thank God he didn't answer my prayer because of the modeling I got from my brothers. It wouldn't have been a pretty picture. But I was a rebellious kid. When my father would say, sit down, I have some words to tell you. And I used to think, oh man, being a parent is easy. I mean, their kids do all the work around the house and they give all the advice around the house. Now, when I became a parent and the tables were turned, it was a different picture. I quickly called my parents up and said, Thank you, thank you, thank you. They said, For what? For all of your time, all of your love, all of your dedication. I didn't know it was this hard. And when I had my own son, I started looking back to the times that I thought I knew better. To the times when I looked at something my father or mother had done and I said, When I grow up, I'm not going to do that. I'll be a far better parent than that. I'll make sure. And I had the whole thing planned out. It's very different when you live in the real world of being a real parent. And you know what? No parent has parenting down pat. It's a process. You don't take parenting 101 in college and get a degree and you've got it all together. No parent has it down pat. In fact, the trouble with parenting is that by the time you're experienced, you're unemployed. Just when you have a handle on it, they're gone. But, though verse 10 says, Hear my son and receive my sayings, verse 11 gives balance to that. Notice the balance. I have taught you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in the right paths. Do you notice the balance here between words and example? Precept and practice. See, parents' involvement in a kid's life is not just by saying, Son, sit down, let me tell you something. But it's by example, leading them in the right paths. And I think what a beautiful thing it is to say, to be able to say to your children, I have not only told you, I have modeled for you life. I have led you in these paths. Now, we do love to quote Proverbs 22. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And and, and I think a lot of times we throw that out as a band-aid, thinking, uh, you know, all I have to do is talk to my kids every now and then and throw out a few precepts and throw out a few principles. And if I do that every now and then, they'll grow up and they'll be fine. The word train up in that verse, Proverbs 22, is a broad term that doesn't mean just dictate educational values to them. The word train is a Hebrew word, hanak, that literally means to put something into someone's mouth or to affect one's taste. 
The Arabs have a similar word to the Hebrew word, and it describes a process of putting date syrup on one's finger, placing it in a newborn's mouth so as to stimulate the sucking reflex. Mmm, that tastes good. And they start, mmm. That's the whole idea of training. So training goes beyond pontificating and saying, here are the rules for life. It means I will stimulate their taste. I will stimulate their taste by modeling godly behavior. Abraham Lincoln once said, for a man to train up a child in the way that he should go, he must walk that way himself. We all know, don't we, that kids learn more by what they watch than what they hear. In fact, if what they hear and what they watch are world apart, that in and of itself is a value message to them. A message of hypocrisy. Kids love to mimic their parents. Kids will sing the same songs their parents sing, say the same things their parents say. Have you ever caught yourself saying, Son, where'd you get that from you? Yeah, I said that. Oh, you say it all the time. But kids love to mimic their parents. It's a joy. That's how they learn in the early years. Like the, a woman from New York, she's vacuuming her home and she's singing that great old song of the church, you know. And, um, soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. And she's vacuuming her house, singing that. And her son, not quite getting the whole message, the words, sings his own version of it. Soon and very soon, we are going to Burger King. <laughs> Thought it was a lunch invitation. I watch so many things that I do as I watch my son by what he says and does. So, involvement means our precepts and our practices become one. Also, loving discipline, I think, is a part of involvement. It doesn't mention it explicitly in this text, except there's the words, I led you in the right paths. I think that has to involve discipline. Because there are paths that they may want to go on that you correct them by discipline into the right path. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 24, tells us, He who spares the rod hates his son. And he who loves him disciplines him promptly. If my father were here today, he'd say amen to that one. Because he always followed through in discipline. Now, this does not mean blind brutality. It's not an invitation for parents to beat their children. The idea is lovingly correcting their faults and putting them on the right path. But there's a stronger warning of discipline over in Proverbs 19, verse 18. It says, Chasten your son, listen how this is put, Chasten your son while there's hope. Chasten him while there's hope, and do not be a willing party to his death. One who refuses to lovingly, and let me underline that in yellow and red and multicolors, lovingly discipline his children. One who refuses to lovingly discipline his child is one who in effect desires the worst for his child and is not a child's friend but enemy. Even if you say, oh, but I love him too much. I don't want to discipline him in life. Even if your motivation is love, the effect will be as if you hated him in the end. It is not love to withhold correction or to overlook blatant disobedience. Even God, it says, chastens those that he loves. Now, some believe today that uh, discipline um, is outdated, medieval, brutish, uh, should be done away with. 
that all you have to do is sit down and negotiate with your two-year-old and he'll be able to understand completely and pick up on the concept, maybe counter-offer, but eventually you'll come to terms. And the discipline is the dark ages. Well, there's a couple of sociologists from Harvard University who, after examining the way children act, developed a test to discover the primary factors necessary to prevent delinquency in children, especially older children. Number one, number one on the list, a father's firm, fair, and consistent discipline. Number two on the list, the mother's supervision and companionship during the day. Number three on the list, the parent demonstrated affection for each other and for the children. And finally, number four, the family spending time together in activities where everyone participated. Now, there is a difference in discipline between corrective and preventative. I think there's two kinds of discipline. I think you correct, but then I think you prevent, and I think you need both of them. There is corrective discipline. There's a time where you have to take action as a parent to prevent something, to stop it, and you correct immediately. Unfortunately, corrective discipline is the only kind of discipline that many parents know. They know how to raise their hand or their voice and have a sharp tongue, but that's just about it. Uh, two guys were talking, and they were both raised in Christian homes, and they were talking about discipline. And so one said to his friend, well... What about you? Did you ever get spanked as a kid? He said, did I ever get spanked? There was a strap hanging in the kitchen, and underneath was the motto, I need thee every hour. <laughs> My mother lived by that motto for me. But then there's preventative. And I think, man, this you can't have good corrective discipline without preventative discipline. Uh, a good doctor uses not only corrective medicine, but a good doctor will prevent a disease from happening early on. Preventative medicine is also necessary in parenting. Things like praying with your kids, playing with your kids, getting on their level, getting into their world, playing with their toys, having them explain their world and their life to you. They'll see you then as non-threatening. Uh, by the way, on discipline, I think it's a mistake parents make. And again, I'm not an expert, but don't threaten your kids. Promise them, but don't threaten them. Now, if you do that again, I'm going to... And then you never do. And so you say it again. I told you, if you do it again, I'm going to... And you raise your voice. And after several decibel increases, finally you step in in absolute frustration and anger. The message you then send to your children is, you can get away with a lot until I reach that certain decibel level. And when I reach that decibel level, you better look out because I'm going to just become unglued. My father and my mother believed in promises, not threats. They would say something, and if I disobeyed, they would follow through with it. It was a promise, not a veiled threat. But we need preventative discipline. And the corrective discipline only reinforces the preventative, the loving, the praying, the playing together, the getting involved in the world of the children. According to a recent report, the primary cause for children being in foster homes is not divorce, nor money problems, nor the death of parents. But the number one reason kids are in foster homes is the disinterest of parents. That's the lack of loving preventative discipline. The Gallup Youth Survey said out of a thousand teenagers, 
42% had not received words of praise during the 24-hour period they were tested. Half of those we tested had gotten no hug or no kiss, and 44% had not heard the words, I love you. I love you is preventative discipline. All right, that's involvement. Let's look at instruction, parents' instruction. Notice it says, I have taught you, or I have given you instruction in the way of wisdom. When God first gave the law to Moses, and Moses passed it down to the fathers of the children of Israel, the elders, the moms and dads, it wasn't to stop there. God said, not only do this, but this is what he said to parents. Impress these on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. In other words, this law, these precepts are to be part of the fiber of your life. And they're as natural in conversation with your kids as anything else would be. You get up in the morning, you take a walk, you come home, you go to bed at night. You mention you bring God into the home when you talk, when you walk. Look for windows of opportunity. They're sometimes naturally open. You'll be in a situation, your son or daughter will ask you a question. It's just perfectly tailor-made, that window, for a beautiful instruction. My wife is excellent at this. She has a time every morning. Sometimes I'm involved, but she's always involved with opening up the Bible, teaching practical lessons before school. And then I've developed a thing at home that I call Say, Play, and Pray, which Nathan even to this day loves. It's like a treat. Can we do it? Say, play, and pray is simply we say it, that is, we read the Scripture, and then we play it. We dress up like the characters, and we go through the whole act. And he usually likes to be David, I'm Goliath, I'm always the loser. (laughs) But he loves that. It's empowering to him, and it's visual to him, and it's kinetic to him. And then the third step is pray. We pray about the lesson that what we played and read about tells us. So say, play, and pray. But we're to talk in a very natural way to our kids. And basically that's what Proverbs is, folks. Proverbs is the record of a dad teaching his sons and his daughters about life. Now there's no way to cover everything that Solomon impresses on his children. But I have boiled down five major areas of life that Solomon teaches his children about. Five major areas of life found in the book of Proverbs. And I'll give them to you. First of all, teach them to stand against peer pressure. In Proverbs chapter 1, we've already read it. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. And then it goes on to say, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path. There's a lot of warnings in Proverbs about the inevitability of peers trying to conform you into their image. And what Solomon does is says, look, it's going to happen. They're going to say this. Here's standards of right and wrong. Here's how to meet those temptations. Now, being a kid isn't easy. I don't think it ever was. But I think today it's more difficult. You say, oh, it's the same. They have the same pressures we had. Well, sort of. But they face choices about those pressures a lot earlier than you and I did. And they think about things like nuclear proliferation, AIDS epidemic, world hunger, things that you and I really didn't think about. These are major issues to kids today. And they have to face the temptations, even sexual temptations, which we'll get to in a minute, at an early age. So parents must instruct their children on how to handle peer pressure, how to stand up to other kids, 
to instruct them in this. Instruct them on how to have a good friend, how to be good friends, what a good friend is. Steer them toward good, healthy role models who know how to be courageous and can model that to them. In a recent television program, a group of teenagers was asked this question. What do you see as the greatest problem facing teenagers today? Overwhelmingly, the response is peer pressure. Hands down, it's peer pressure. Now, the way influence works, as you know, is that parents exert the major influence on children when they're young, but then a shift takes place and their peers influence them a lot more than their parents do at an older age. So we start young and we prepare them for this. And I think one way to ease our children's pressure of peers is to hang with them an awful lot, to listen to them, to be there for them, to try to understand life from his point of view. Explain it to me without stopping them saying, well, let me correct you on that. Well, you shouldn't think that way. Just let them vent and be who they are and listen. And the older a child gets, the more crucial this becomes and the more difficult this becomes. The communication changes a little bit. There's a level perhaps of distrust toward the parents. One researcher and conference speaker at a church conference, get this, Ask 42 kids, junior high and high school, how many of you can really sit down and talk to your dads? One person, one girl said, yes, I can. The other said, can't talk to him. No way. I think it eases peer pressure. It takes the pressure off when a parent and a child can talk about anything. It eases the pressure. It creates an environment for instruction. Secondly, we're to train them to be open to correction. You say, I've been trying to teach him that for years. But correction from God. It says in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as the father does the son in whom he delights. We need to teach our kids to be sensitive to God's direction and God's changes of direction, God's correction of our lives. And we need to model that. One of the things I try to tell my son an awful lot, I'm praying it pays off, is I'm constantly telling him now that he has another dad, a heavenly father, a heavenly parent, that one day I won't even be around. But God will always be around and he must always be accountable to God. God sees everything. God knows everything. God is his parent. I'm just launching him toward dependence upon that father more than this father. And one of the ways we teach our children to be open to God's correction is by modeling that again, by refusing to be stubborn ourselves. When God changes our plans, when we see that God is disciplining us, to take it as loving discipline. Dads, teach your kids that stubbornness is not a godly trait, that it is not a manly trait, Stubbornness is to be a wimp, to be a coward. But to face God's change of direction and to face it gracefully, that's character. Um, When you discipline your children and you do it lovingly and embracively, you are then setting your child up for something good in the future. When God disciplines him, he'll take it as loving as well. He'll receive the reinforcement of God's love. Third, sensual temptation. As you know, throughout Proverbs, lots of space is given to Solomon teaching his sons about sexual temptation. And what I love about Solomon, he doesn't skirt the issue. 
he deals with it head on because he knows that this is a pressure that young people face and they face it to a great degree. Plus, never forget who Solomon's dad was, King David, who fell sexually, who had his own problem with lust and yielding to what he saw with Bathsheba. And I think with that in the back of his mind and seeing how it can destroy families, he started very young, talking about sex and sensual temptation. Proverbs 5, My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Lend your ear to my understanding. The lips of an immoral woman drip honey. And her mouth is smoother than oil, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood. Uh, Proverbs 6.25, there's a lot on this, three chapters on this. A highlight is Proverbs 6.25. Do not lust after her beauty in your heart. It's not just the action, it's what the mind does with it. For by the means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread. What Solomon does is talks about the temptation, he talks about sex appeal, And he talks about the potential destructive nature of somebody who's involved in it. It reduces somebody to a crust of bread. Then he also mentions the temptation that he will face or that she will face by peers toward being drunk. Beer parties. Uh, Proverbs 23, 19. Hear, my son, and be wise. Do not mix with wine bibbers. That's the uh, old-fashioned term for uh, drunks. Or with partiers, party animals. Or with gluttons, eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and drowsiness will clothe a man with rags. Why do we need to be the ones to talk about sexual temptation to our children? Well, if our kids go by what they see and hear with the media, the television, the advertising, all the movies, if they go by what they see and hear, they will be led astray. They will be led astray on the wrong path. It's time for honest discussion. And we need to listen to them tell us about their temptations. You say, but you don't know my child. My child is... Listen, just because your kid is born in your home doesn't mean they're not going to face sexual temptation or advancement. Do they know how to stop it when it comes? Have you talked to them about it? You see, they're going to learn the facts of life. They're either going to learn it from you or from the street, but they're going to learn it. You know, my parents didn't like to talk about the subject of sex much. I would bring it up as a kid because I was inquisitive. And it was just an uncomfortable kind of a dancing around topic. But I learned it, not where I should have learned it from. But kids will learn it. In fact, surveys show that less than 5% of today's Christian parents are giving children honest, loving, thorough sexual guidance at home. Now, you might yet not yet be a parent. You might not even be married. And you say, okay, quickly pass over this. This has nothing to do with me. This has everything to do with you as a single person. Because your values now will to a large part determine the values of your children. Because they're going to ask you questions like, well, in a relationship, Dad, how far should I go? Well, let me ask you this, Dad, how, how far did you go? Mom, what about you? And they're going to see if it's an honest answer or not. It has everything to do with you even before you're married. Uh, Fourth area of instruction is teach them to be responsible with money. Solomon has a lot to say about this to his kids. One is Proverbs 3, verse 9. Honor the Lord with your possessions, my son, and with the first fruits of all of your increase. What is he saying to his son? Son, learn how to invest in the Lord's work. 
Your money is a gift from God. You're a steward of that money. Uh, Teach them how to honor God with their possessions. Teach them the joy of giving, not the joy of spending only. Teach them the joy of budgeting and seeing how life can work that way instead of credit cards and debt. The Bible has a lot to say about that. Proverbs 22, 7. He says, The borrower is the servant or the slave to the lender. Talk about saving, spending, tithing, earning. And then uh, same chapter, verse 9, talks about responsibility with our money to those who are underprivileged. He who has a generous eye will be blessed, for he gives of his bread to the poor. And of course... Kids, again, learn by example. You might tell them one thing, but they watch how you spend your money. Give them an allowance. I think that's healthy. When you give them an allowance, you are creating independence. And you want that. You want them to learn how to spend money on their own. Set parameters. You can't spend money on this. I'm not going to let you go to those kind of movies. There are certain things that are off limits. But I want you to be independent. Moreover, I want you to learn how to budget. Well, I ran out of money. Can I have? No, you can't have that because the real world doesn't work that way except on credit cards, and you don't want that. Learn how to budget. I know one parent, uh, a few actually here, and and what they do is they give their kids an allowance, and uh, they have to tithe the first part, first percentage of it, give that to God's work, to the Lord. Secondly, they have to save a percentage, and the rest, they can do whatever they want with it. They learn how to budget from an early age. I remember as a kid, I wanted things from my dad, and my dad had some money, and uh, I was 15 years old, and, you know, I wanted transportation. I had a bicycle and a motorcycle that worked half the time. And a neighbor a couple blocks down, her daddy, just bought her a new Porsche. She was 15 years old. So I'm, you know, 16 now. Hey, come on, Dad. I'm not asking for a red Porsche, but buy me a car. And he said, buy your own car. What do you mean by my own car? Look, you have a bicycle and you have a motorcycle. That'll take you to work and you can earn enough to get a car. Well, why don't you buy me one and I'll pay you back? No, I won't do that. Now, I'm not going to impose that on everybody or say that's right or wrong, but I'll tell you what, it taught me valuable lessons. I worked very hard and very quickly so that I could have a roof about my head when I would go places. The fifth area of instruction... Teach them the value of hard work. That kind of goes part and parcel with the fourth one, responsibility toward money. Teach them the value, the satisfaction of a job well done. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 4 and 5. He who has a slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in the summer is a wise son. He who sleeps in harvest is a son who causes shame. Teach them that it is rewarding to finish a job and say, I did a good job. I'm proud of the job that I did. That can be a reward in and of itself. And, you know, we're in a society where hard manual labor is sort of, you know, uh, well, that's not good anymore, and I want to be the executive. There's a lot of college students, I think, that think as soon as they graduate, they're going to be an executive. They think that manual labor is the president of Nicaragua instead of something they could do. (laughs) One of the best pieces of advice was from my pastor. I told him, I went up to Chuck Smith and I said, I want to be in the ministry. That's what I want to do full time with my life. You know what his advice was? He said, go get a job. I said, I want to be in the ministry. He said, go get a trade. 
a trade that you could travel to different cities and you could set up shop and you could support yourself, get a real life. And then as God blesses your ministry and you have to leave that and go into full-time, that's another thing. But that was such a practical piece of advice that was very, very good for me. Now, the third thing we talk about from this text is the parent's influence. And that's found in verse 12 and 13. When you walk, he's telling his son, listen to my instruction and my example. When you walk, your steps will not be hindered. When you run, you will not stumble. Take firm hold of instruction. Do not let go. Keep her, for she is your life. Parents' involvement, parents' instruction, and parents' influence. Now, as I read this text, if a parent gets involved by regular teaching and continual example of these things, that there will be a payoff, there will be a reward at the end. He will have a son or daughter who walks after God, whose steps are not hindered. Now, there's imagery here that's important to grasp. In Israel, there are rocks everywhere. It's a country of rocks in virtually every part of the country. And there's paths, and there's the job of clearing the stones off the path. The idea behind this promise is that if we are involved in teaching, in loving, in disciplining out of love, and involved in our children's life this way, what we are doing by that is removing the obstacles out of the path of life that would cause them to stumble later on. You are setting them up for success by doing this, by involvement and instruction and discipline. Their steps will not be hindered. Parenting is serious business. One person said it's not for cowards. But I've got to say this. The world out there needs your kids. The world and all of its confusion, all of its trying to understand values, they need the kind of kids that you can produce. Light and salt. Kids that have direction, godly values. They need it more than anything. You see, a parent is a partner with God in discipling his children. That's why, by the way, when we have baby dedications, which we now do only third service, when we have baby dedications, I will often not only pray for the kids, but for the moms and the dads. And I had somebody come up to me afterwards and go, why do you always pray for the parents? This is a baby dedication. I said, well, it is a baby dedication, but you can't dedicate a baby unless the parents are dedicated to God. They must be dedicated by their own examples and lifestyles or the instruction or this prayer of dedication for the kids is all in vain. So is the Lord the center of your home? Do you, like it says in Deuteronomy, talk on the way when you get up, when you go to bed? Is God a part of your life? I'm not saying do you have a plaque that says He's the unseen guest at every meal, or I have a big Bible on my coffee table, it's there right in the center when you walk in. But is He really the center of your home? All of this instruction and influence is crucial. In fact, Francis Xavier in the 1500s, said, Give me the children until they are seven, and anyone can have them after that. He knew that if he could have them for those tender years of life, he could so mold and instruct them that they could live the life they should in this world. So kids are not a short-term loan, but a long-term investment. I found something I wanted to close with. It's called Ten Commandments to Parents written by someone who's a very creative parent. And it's Ten Commandments given by children to parents. Commandment number one, my hands are small. 
Please don't expect perfection whenever I make a bed, draw a picture, or throw a ball. My legs are short. Slow down so I can keep up with you. Commandment number two, my eyes have not seen the world as yours have. Let me explore it safely. Don't restrict me unnecessarily. Commandment three, housework will always be there. I'm only little for a short time. Take time to explain things to me about this wonderful world and do it willingly. Commandment number four, my feelings are tender. Don't nag me all day long. You wouldn't want to be nagged for your inquisitiveness. Treat me as you would like to be treated. Commandment number five, I am a special gift from God. Treasure me as God intended you to. Hold me accountable for my actions. Give me guidelines to live by and discipline me in a loving manner. Commandment number six, I need your encouragement but not your empty praise to grow. Go easy on the criticism. Remember, you can criticize the things I do without criticizing me. Commandment seven, give me the freedom to make decisions concerning myself. Permit me to fail so that I can learn from my mistakes. Then someday I'll be prepared to make the decisions life will require of me. Commandment number eight, don't do things over for me. That makes me feel that my efforts didn't measure up to your expectations. I know it's hard, but please don't compare me with my brother or sister. Commandment number nine, don't be afraid to leave for a weekend together. Kids need vacations from their parents. And parents need vacations from their kids. Besides, it's a great way to show us kids that your marriage is something special. Commandment number 10. Take me to Sunday school and to church regularly, setting a good example for me to follow. I enjoy learning more about God. I found that to be true. Kids love talking about Jesus. They love talking about... I've Talk to kids who are in atheistic, seemingly homes. And yet there is such an openness to the things of God. And you teach them, they just soak it up. Precious, precious gems. Let's treat them carefully, responsibly, lovingly. Father, we thank you this morning for the gems that you've entrusted to us. Whether we have one or many, or whether we have none yet. We pray, Father, that we might, by your example... not try to impose our lives onto them, but to impart your values, realizing they belong to you, and you've simply entrusted them to us for a short time. I pray, Lord, that we would foster a dependence upon you ultimately for them. And thank you for the potential. In Jesus' name, amen.